Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a writer and podcaster. You can find my work in a bunch of places, um, including the other podcast I co-host, Blocked Reported, which is at blockedreported.org. It's also my newsletter, Single-Minded, at jessiesingle.substack.com. Uh, today's a very special episode, even more special than all of my other episodes, each of which is also special. I'm going to be talking to Alberto Gulava Jr. Uh, I'm going to give a very brief bio about him. He's a lecturer at UC Irvine and a graduate of the MFA program in fiction there. Before that, he graduated from the University of Virginia uh, back in the aughts, and he also did Teach for America in Miami. He was born in Hawaii, where his dad uh, cut sugarcane, and then after his dad joined the military, he moved all over the place, like a lot of military brats. Uh, these details matter for reasons that will become clear if you aren't already familiar with Alberto's story. So we're here mostly to talk about his experiences navigating the New York City publishing world. That was the subject of our second most recent episode of Locked and Reported, where we told his story and included a bunch of clips from a conversation I had with him. I was very, very glad I was able to bring his story um, a little bit of exposure. The, the short version is that Alberto wrote a novel University Thugs, which drew from his own experiences at UVA, where he lived with a group of mostly black students who experienced a, a very strange form of ghettoization, given that UVA is sort of an elite so-called public ivy. This was just sort of about these these basically, you know, kids from somewhat troubled backgrounds in some cases and, and just what it's like to be on an elite college campus when you don't have much money and you come from a non-college background. Um after a long period honing his book, Alberto found an agent who was very, very enthusiastic about it. That enthusiasm fell off a cliff after the agent found out that Alberto is not black. He's Filipino. And things only got worse for the book's prospects uh, as America's most recent reckoning took hold, leading to some very strange dynamics within the world of publishing, uh, especially the parts of it that are sort of run by white agents and editors. Despite being a person of color with lived experience, as in actual lived experience, not in the meaningless catchphrase sense, uh, Alberto found that his agent, his agent strongly encouraged him to change one of his main protagonists from black to Filipino so that author and character would have the same race. This is a big thing in some corners of the literary world. The agent also brought Alberto a so-called sensitivity reader, someone who could make sure the book was racially sensitive enough. That person was a young black woman from the Caribbean who lived in the UK, which uh, certainly left me asking questions about what possible, possible magic powers her melanin could provide that would allow her to overcome the long geographical and cultural distance between the islands and the UK and Charlottesville. This was just, it's just this sort of tokenization that goes on uh, in some elite spaces where, oh, she's black. She can, she can answer these questions about the quote unquote black experience. Uh, anyway, I want to leave a lot of time uh, for our conversation, our questions, but please do check out University Thugs on Amazon. I highly recommend it. And he is selling it independently without the assistance of a publisher. Also, check, uh, follow Alberto on Substack and Twitter, where his pseudonym is Free Chef, which same pseudonym you see here. Um, I will leave it at that for now. Alberto, was that an appropriate introduction? Did I leave anything else or out or get anything wrong? No, that was wonderful. Thanks, Jesse. Actually, your um, the way you presented University Thugs on Blocked and Reported was, you know, was tremendous in that you went into detail about your favorite scene involving masturbation and playing Madden and pizza eating and smoking weed 
Yeah, and, it was a lived experience thing for me. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the, that's people's first impression of the book. That it's this <laughs> book, you know, this this act of literary fiction, high art, avant-garde art. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just beating off and playing magic. So <laughs> the reason that. that scene was so good, uh, you're welcome, is you could like taste this kid's desperation and his not great mental state and his sort of self-defeating nature. That was what was so impressive to me. It's like a multi-page scene where nothing happens, but you're still somehow riveted. So I found it really good and really claustrophobic. Um, and I'm glad you wrote it. I, that's my only critique. There should have been way more masturbation in the novel. Otherwise, it's perfect. You know what? My I, I asked my wife, and she actually said that was one of her favorite scenes in the book, too. See? You know, when you write stuff like that, you're always afraid. And at the back of your mind, it's like, you know, she... You know, is she suspicious about me and what I'm doing in the office? (laughs) And no, she loved it too. Uh, I should add, I I do have some questions for Alberto, but folks should definitely hop in the queue if they they have any questions or comments. Um, So a first question is just what the response has been since the podcast. I hope you got at least a little bit of um, positive feedback and or Amazon's love from it. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been tremendous so far. I mean, just... Most of all, I mean, uh, selling some books is, is always nice, but, you know, getting the messages from people, uh, because you, you click buy and then, you know, that's, that's easy to do. And you've, you know, you've done your charity, but when people like sit down and, and, and write you and take time to really think through an email and I've gotten like these brilliant manic emails from people who have figured out my whole path to publishing and you know this one guy's like I-, I can't sleep until i get this out and it's like this you know a thousand word email outlining <laughs> yeah. everything i should do and you know messages like that from people from all over the world is you know that's really really humbling and um you know the amazon love is nice and um becoming more of a presence on you know social media and and getting love there is you know is also nice. What ultimately made you decide as like your final answer to say, screw it and just sell the book yourself. Cause this was something we went back and forth on a bit in the run up to the episode. Well, I mean, I kept thinking about, I kept thinking about Colin Kaepernick <laughs> for some reason. I kept thinking about, you know, he took a very bold stance against what he saw was a big problem in this country and how, you know, the body like the NFL was somehow complicit in that problem. And then he turned around and begged for a contract uh, from this racist organization. And, and somehow those two things weren't aligning. And I, you know, I thought about my situation as well. Um, Wouldn't that kind of undercut, the things I was saying about publishing, you know, to turn around and stick my hand out and say, you know, please, can I, you know, can I have a contract? Can someone publish me, please? Right. It, it just didn't, you know, didn't align. And it felt like uh, that somehow any of this could be framed as a ploy just to get a book contract. 
So I, I mentioned the name of this room is Alberto Galapa Jr. on navigating the racial anxiety of white publishing gatekeepers. Uh, the term like white racial anxiety is usually used by, um, you know, folks like Robin D'Angelo to talk about white people who are conservative in their racial views, who don't want to talk about race or who instantly become defensive. My sense is there's definitely a flip side of that in, in terms of white people who become weird when race comes up or who are anxious about it as a subject, even though they have sort of the right liberal credentials. Do you think that's the right framing here? Is that what you encountered in this world or, or is it different? I mean, I mean, it's no secret that publishing is probably one of the widest industries on this planet. And so you're right on that account. Um, but you know, when, when I look at publishing, it is its own ecosystem. It's it's kind of alive in its own sense. And there are people of all colors involved. And I, I just remember, uh, I don't know if uh, people know this, but uh, how this, how, how Jesse uh, came to this story was from a, I guess, I don't know if you could call it a, a, a viral tweet storm. Um is it okay if I go into this a little bit? Yeah, yeah. this was from your friend, right? Yeah, well, basically, you know, I, I didn't want any attention, like, from the beginning. Uh, at the beginning of the summer, you know, I looked up my whiteboard, and it's like, okay, you have a whiteboard, it's the beginning of the summer, have some goals for the summer, be productive. Okay, one is uh, finish another draft of your, your second novel, and two, put this first novel to bed, and fuck it, just self-publish it. So I had wanted to self-publish for a while, uh, found no luck with uh, traditional publishing. So just, you know, put it to bed, put it out there in the world, move on with your life. And so around the middle of the summer, I start texting some of my writer friends. I don't know many, just asking, hey, do, do you know anything about self-publishing? Or do you know, and nobody knows anything. And I text one friend, Justin, Justin Lee, and, you know, I say, hey, you know, I'm looking to self-publish, and he is outraged. He is incensed. He's like, you know, what happened to the super agent? I'm like, nah, it just kind of went sideways, some gross racial stuff. And, you know, he, he says he's outraged, and, you know, that's what a friend is supposed to say. They're supposed to be outraged on your behalf. And I go to bed, and I wake up the next morning, and it's viral, uh, all the big Literary gatekeepers are tweeting about it. People, you know, right-wing pundits are tweeting about it. Um, Elon Musk somehow wanders in, into the thread. And, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, shit, well, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, I kind of want to stay, stay out of it. Um, you know, what a good friend to kind of <laughs> tweet my business out to the world. Um, but one of the things that, kind of motivated me to at least uh, go public with this um, was the lack of recognition or the lack of support from a lot of the minority gatekeepers in the literary world. Um, they were apt to dismiss that something like this could ever happen. And, you know, as one minority looking to these minority writers and gatekeepers who've made it, you know, it just, you know, felt very painful 
for them to deny the possibility of something like like this even happening. So um, they, they were really just like, this is not an accurate portrayal of what happened, or there was genuine skepticism there? I mean, I, I, I will say that, you know, my my friend Justin, um, he comes in hot on Twitter. And so maybe <laughs> some of the skepticism was from that. But, you know, the the gatekeepers would tweet nonsense, you know, quote, nonsense. And... Yeah. You know that that you know that 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 really hurt um, to see no support it, from 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 them. In journalism, there's a um, a dynamic where the exact same people who are making newsrooms shitty and toxic, and often working to get their colleagues fired, if you bring that up, they will loudly de- deny that anything like that is happening. Like often, the exact same people creating the toxicity. I wonder if that's that could explain some of the behavior you're seeing. Although I you know I don't know the specifics. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Um, why don't we take a call from Yasarion, and then we will uh, see what he has to say. What's up, man? Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, so thanks for taking my call. Um, Jesse, this conversation reminds me somewhat of, or at least it brings to mind, um, the conversation you had with Alice Gribben a while back. And I'm just curious... Alberto, I, I mean, this is kind of a loaded question because it sounds like you're still in the academy. Um, but to what extent is uh, elite higher education having this influence on the literary arts? And it seems to me it's also, you know, just you bringing it up in the context of what's happening in journalism. I, I mean, looking at this from the outside, it seems like a lot of this stuff, this identitarian stuff, this grievance based stuff is downstream of, of what academia has done and that academia has sort of successfully colonized or is in the process of successfully colonizing journalism, uh, literary art, etc. So just curious to get both your guys thoughts on that. Can I add one thing to that before I toss it to Alberto? Um, Alberta, you teach at UC Irvine, which I, I think being a California public school probably has a lot of like first generation students and immigrants and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I'm curious whether, because my, my general sense is the more elite the school and the more removed from like the public university setting or community college setting, the more that stuff is a factor and that often stuff are more normal in settings like stuff is more normal in settings like yours. So it varies, but I'm I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. Well, it, it it depends because you see Irvine, we um, we explicitly cater to to first gen students, and you know um, economic diversity is something that we've been recognized for. Um, but I, I think we our English department in particular has a very strong um, history and reputation with critical theory, and. You know that that just because we cater to a a first gen, um, not necessarily woke population, doesn't mean we're out of the woods. <laughs> uh, but but to Yasarian's question about the impact of higher education on on literature and and perhaps even art, um, this is something that I've been thinking about as someone who is the product of uh, the MFA system. Um, I definitely think academic credentials 
do have an impact on the art. I mean, how could you even deny it? And when you think about people going through, you know, 12 years of schools, 13 years of school, four years of undergrad, another two or three years of graduate school, you're selecting for a certain type of person, a certain type of sensibility, certain ways that your brain is apt to function. And you can't help but think the things that academic credentials select for constrain um, the kind of art that you produce on the other end. I mean, if you do believe that uh, school selects for compliance and social conformity and whatever, whatever, then you would have to note some, I guess, um, some correlation between between that and the art itself. And yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what I think. It, it just, you know, that's it's just sad to me that in order to publish and participate in art that um, you almost have to be an egghead first. <laughs> Maybe this is an adjacent point because it doesn't tie directly to academia. But when I solicited emails from folks in young adult fiction, which has the most crazy culture war of all going on, I got a number from writers who were not white, but um, went through something similar to you where they said white agents and editors had really encouraged them to basically stay in their lane. And, you know, if they're black, write about black people. If they're Indian, write about Indian people. And this is an example of like a particular ideology pretty explicitly, you know, choosing certain stories at the expenses of others. Like who knows if, how good these writers were or if they would have been published, but they were basically told – the stories they wanted to write were not really welcome or encouraged in the YA world. And I would imagine, you know, seems like similar stuff is now going on in the adult fiction world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I've been trying to, you know, my instinct is always to empathize and to understand how, you know, they're processing this and how they see the world. And I've got a good basketball analogy for you, Jesse. Sweet. I know you're amenable to that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's as if you are like a seven-footer in a league where everyone's like 6'4 and below. And, and, of course, your coach is telling you, hey, get in the post, man. Get on the block. <laughs> you know, that is your supreme competitive advantage. So, you know, a lot of these white agents or white people in publishing, they're looking at us minority kids, and they're like, hey, you know this. You know this is your competitive advantage. Write about auntie. Write about the smells of your mom's kitchen. And, and well, they, so they, I mean, it, there's a, a in a sense they're trying to help. I mean, it's sort of self-serving, but if they really think that's what the market is calling for, that's sort of what an agent's job is, right? Yeah, I mean, but it's you know, but again, it's short-sighted. Yeah. Right, because they think you know they're doing you a favor. They're getting you in the game. They're getting you published. But you know, you step back and, and, and big picture, what do you got? Um, right. You know, ultimately, it's about the readers. And you know, I, I'm not sure in the long run this serves the readers. Well, there's it's undoubtedly the case that there's a black or Latino or Indian kid who could be the next great mystery writer, just writing mysteries and if it would be a shame if they were encouraged to shy from that toward a more um i don't know ideologically predictable form of of fiction um anything else you sorry and are we did we more or less answer the question no i think you i think you you guys did a, a great job with it it just you know i mean 
when I was, I was an English major in college and my sort of area of real interest was early modernism, early to high modernism. So, you know, the first half of the 20th century and, you know, one of the, probably the, the greatest American writer during that period was Ernest Hemingway. And, you know, he had a high school diploma. He never went to college. And the idea that you would have somebody with, with that background, you know, and he worked as a journalist, right? He went off to World War I and got hurt and came back and became a working, you know, shoe leather journalist. And that's how he launched himself into writing. And it just seems like there's virtually, and you guys would know far more about this than I do, because one of you is a journalist and the other is a writer, but it just seems like there's almost no way that that could happen today because of the credentialism and because the academy, you know, extorts both the money and the ideological conformity in, in order to get through it to get to that point. The class, yeah, I think the class issue in, in both fields uh, are horrible and enormous. And one of the things that pissed me off about Alberto's story is like, not to be condescending to him, but like he's the kind of dude you should want to be able to break into fiction. Someone who's not from not a fourth generation novelist or whatever. And the idea of like an educated white agent or editor imposing his ideology on the manuscript, uh, it just pissed me off for reasons yeah, that should I'll be just, obvious. I'll, right I'll, I'll just end by saying, you know, Alberto, you're somebody who, you know, as as a reader of fiction, I want to see what you can do unconstrained by these these norms. Right. I want to see you put your talent to the test to come up. You know, I, I read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison for the first time a couple of years ago, and it's just a mind bending book of the kind that I haven't read before. Or the first time I read Catch-22, you know, just these things that take literary forms in a completely unconventional direction and so to just see artists like yourself being constrained by conventionality and such small-minded and narrow-minded conventionality is is frustrating anyway thanks for the time jesse appreciate it of course uh matt you're up uh hey can you hear me yep cool by the way i just want to reiterate that uh catch 22 is one of the most amazing books ever and i want it now I'm wondering if you're and that that's your real name or if you took that from Catch-22. <laughs> um, but anyway, so my question actually um, is, <clears throat> segues pretty nicely from uh, how you ended the answer to the last, um, to Yazarian's question, um, which is that I felt when I was listening to the most, uh, to to this episode of Blockchain Report, I don't think it's the most recent one, maybe it's the second most recent, but uh, when I was listening to, to the Blockchain Reported episode, um, about Alberto, I, to me, it felt like there was a bit of disconnect uh, at some point between what Alberto was saying and and Jesse Yurt and Kate um, Katie's reaction to it, and so um, and specifically about this this part about the agent because if if I recall correctly, like um, Alberto, you said that like it had been uh, a pleasure to work with him and that you thought he was uh, sort of looking out for you. Um, and then it felt like Jesse and Katie were maybe much more pessimistic about uh, the agent or less less uh, trusting. Um, yeah, what, mean, do you, what do you mean, think about that, Alberta? I am the only one who, um, out of everyone I know, I am the only one who has come away from this experience with the agent with, I guess, overall nice things to say about this person you know my wife hates the guy all my friends who, who knew I, I was with the guy hate him as well everyone I've known has not everyone but 
people I've known have called him a racist. Um, but you know, I, I don't, I don't see him or his actions. I, I mean, I don't see him as a rogue actor. You know, I, I see what happened. I look back on what happened and, you know, I'm trying to understand, you know, what pressures were exerted on okay. him and, you know, why he ultimately, you know, did what he did and behaved how he behaved. You're too nice. And, you're too reasonable. Well, well <laughs> I mean, you're a novelist and you have to lean in with curiosity and try to figure out, okay, this didn't come from nowhere. You know, he's a product of, of an ecosystem. And if this were to happen, you know, if we ran the simulation a hundred times, I think 99 out of a hundred, you know, it, it, you know, would have turned out similarly. If anything, he was nice trying to make it work. Uh, you know, as long as he did, because, and I've told you this, Jesse, it's like, you know, if I were in his position, you know, I would have been like, oh, sorry, I didn't know. Uh, you know, really, it's just a bad time for the industry. I don't think I can see how we could make this work. Um, well, but if he, I, see, I would have felt less negatively if he had done that versus things like the sensitivity reader and trying to, in, encourage you to change the race of one of the protagonists that that was the stuff that really <laughs> cringed me out a little bit yeah yeah it made, it made for a more interesting story i think that makes yeah. sense Matt. anything else well yeah it makes sense i mean i was i was gonna just add on so what i the way i envisioned in my mind is there's sort of three potential explanations for her for the way he behaved um one, I guess, uh, that he is ideological himself and and believes uh, that you shouldn't write about a race that isn't yours, which seems can I, like can I, just, can I just this is obnoxiously jumping in, but I don't think these people believe in anything. I really don't think they have beliefs except what they're what will keep them from getting in trouble on Twitter. Although I bet Alberta would say that I'm being too mean. <laughs> so so yeah so i mean that's probably i think that's probably not the case just from the way he acted it didn't sound like he was himself enraged by anything but um anyway so that leaves the other two things which i imagine one b is the more what i think jesse said you said which is that he's just kind of uh cold and calculating and thinks oh cool let's just like lean into the filipino thing or the asian thing because uh, you know that's that's what's cool um and then the third one which i think is more alberto's uh, perspective and and honestly the the way it just came off to me is that he's more almost of a he's a, himself sort of a pessimist about the industry right he he foresees honestly I could I could in theory envision him even as a as a blockchain reported listener who's just like oh shit if we don't handle this this is gonna provide it come up with a shitstorm for us and like I've <laughs> I've still heard of so many instances of you know writers getting canceled even if I don't agree with it myself. Um, and so like, I know that we need to get ahead of this. And that was for most of the interview, I thought that was the impression I got from Alberto's, uh, uh, from how Alberto described it. And so I was, I just found it a bit, a bit surprising, um, your and Katie's more, more, uh, negative reaction, well, but yeah, I mean, I'll give, I'll give Alberto the last word cause he would know more about the dude's actual politics than mine. I think I was coming from a place of just having looked into the YA stories, the amount of, opportunism and cowardice on display mm -hmm. among agents in particular, although I'm most familiar with the ones on Twitter. I just, I, I think it's, I don't know. I just, you know, 
as someone who I've never met Alberto, but who liked him from talking to him on the phone and interviewing him, I, I thought he was a little bit mistreated. Mm-hmm. But, but what do you think, Alberto? I mean, do, do you think he actually had ideological views on this? Or am I right that this is all just sort of professional incentives? Yeah, I don't know if he was a, if he's a true believer uh, or, or not, or this was purely a business calculation or a function of him being in the good graces of his social circle, maybe all of the above. Uh, I, I don't know, but one, one bit of context I'd like to add, I didn't realize this until I was looking into this, you know, a few days ago, but, but did you cover that, that, um, that poem that was published in the nation? Did you cover? Oh, this was a, a, just a ridiculous thing where a white author, um, had a poem that tell me if I'm telling the story right. It basically had a little bit of African American vernacular. The you would have thought this guy like killed a bunch of <laughs> people of color, and the nation printed this pathetic uh, apology letter that was longer than the poem itself. And then after all this, John McWhorter, who knows more about AAV than anyone, did an article that was just like. The African-American uh, vernacular in this poem was fine because the argument was like it had been super inaccurate or something. Is it, do I have that right? Yeah. And, you know, everyone piled on this poor poet who was, you know, it was an extreme act of empathy where he was trying to, you know, channel the voice of a of a black um, homeless, homeless person. I think yeah. he was a veteran as well. And I remember the offend, one of the offending lines was, I think it was, they is. Do I have that correctly? It was they is. It was something and, and, that that like how could you actually be offended by that? Yeah. Yeah, it was they <laughs> it was they is. And I remember people were coming out and saying, Hey, don't even try um A A V E, I guess is what it's called. Um stay in your lane or know your lane and that that happened like the month or two uh before you know, the agent found out um my race, but I distinctly remember that moment, you know, sending a chill throughout the writing community. And well, people see the point of the pylon is to send a message to others. Like, don't do this, you know, exactly. And so maybe that, that is lurking in the background background as well. But, you know, just, just from my vantage point, looking at the industry kind of from the outside, you know, you size it up and it's just like, oh, no, I mean, this, you know, it just looks like bad news. And to be honest, my whole, you know, my whole uh, mind state was, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that they would let me in. You know, when I first took on this agent and, you know, we were going to make the rounds, I was kind of in, in disbelief a little bit, like, uh, you know. Um, and I was just, I was just <laughs> hoping uh, I would get through, but it was all for naught. Uh, thank you, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Alexa. What's up? Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, great. My Alexa uh, just went off when I said your name. Oh no, <laughs> that is a microaggression. Yeah, you <laughs> sorry. You are not an. You are not an. You are not an AI. You are a human. <laughs> I am a human. Um, I wanted to to ask about um, the issue or like one possible solution to this problem could be anonymity or pseudonyms. I know 
um, back in the day, women used to write under pen names or initials so that publishers would think that they're men and publish them. Maybe we have to go back <laughs> to that. Alberto yeah. should have written under, yeah, a, white under a black or name. Non, yeah, not, or non-black uh, authors have to write under initials and then just yeah. never reveal their race. I don't know how the publishing industry works. Like, do the editors have to know who the authors are? And or do they just communicate in writing and never meet them? Right. Uh, Would there be no interest in, if a book is written about the black experience if the author is unknown? Is that part of it? Why it couldn't be somebody writing under a pen name and put it out like that? What do you think, Alberta? I mean, I remember, you know, asking the agent about that. I was like, you know. Because I was trying to get out of rewrites. I was like, you know, there's got to be an easier fix. And I was like, why don't I just write under a pen name? Why don't I do this? Why don't I do that? And, you know, he was adamant that, you know, I, I couldn't. I couldn't write uh, anonymously. So that, you know, I'm curious about why that option was off the table. You know, I suspect that, I guess, to write anonymously about, I guess, race um, would arouse suspicion. People um, would definitely ask what race is this anonymous author. Yeah. So and that's I, feel, I was I was doing guilty laughing, imagining you adopting like a, a real nation of Islam uh, pseudonym. <laughs> Malik, Malik X Shabazz. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Yeah, I won't even touch that one. Yeah, I still want a job, but yeah. I hear you. Yeah, but, but maybe this is going to be something in the future. If any white writer wants to write anything like that poem you were talking about they won't have to they will not want to have who they really are behind it they'll just let the work speak for themselves and not take any credit because it would only be blowback yeah I, I do think what alberto is saying is true that at the moment people are so race conscious that um any anonymous author if there's any question about who the author really was that would be the first thing the uh the twitter hordes would ask but uh i'm with you i wish you know i obviously wish um People could look past that, but uh, thank you for the call. Thank you. Well, actually, to, to, to touch oh, on one more yeah, thing go ahead, that you said, um, I, I believe there there is a, I don't know if it's a current controversy where, I guess, three men, I think in Spain, invented a female identity to write a line <laughs> yes. of books. Yeah. Very successful. It was either Spain or Italy. I could be misremembering, but yeah. Yeah, very Carmen Molo. Books. And I remember a couple of years ago, uh, a, a white man invented an Asian American female identity to publish his poems, and it was act, it was actually more successful publishing his poems under his um, his Oriental um, identity. And so, yeah, someone someone beat <laughs> beat her to the punch, right? It's already been done. Uh, what's up, Joanne? Do you want to unmute yourself? Joanne? All right, Joanne, I'm going to take another question from Matt. Just get back in the queue. You got to um, unmute yourself. Matt, what's up? Hello again. Uh, hey. Yeah, I only re-entered the queue just because uh, I saw it was empty, so I don't want to take up too much time. Um, I was just wondering, uh, where did the uh, Free Chef uh, pseudonym come from? That's the yeah. Alberto, obviously. Yeah, yeah, gr uh, great question. Um, you know, it took me a long time to write the book, and it's um, originally 
the, the conceit of the book was, I guess, one of, one of the great uh, Dave Chappelle sketches in the Chappelle show, uh, when keeping it real goes wrong. <laughs> and so it just, and this was during, well, while I was in uh, graduate school, it was just, you know, this wild, satiric, silly, you know, book, <laughs> kind of a picaresque. And then, you know, you, you kind of get more into it. You know, it's pleasing people at the workshop table. And it revolved around this character named Chef, who um, had this really kind of popular public access a TV show called Cooking for Homeboys. And he was kicked off air for keeping it too real. And, yes. you know, he he was banned and he had this legion of loyal fans who wanted him back on air. And so they'd hold up these signs at basketball games that would say free chef. And so it was always an inside joke about <laughs> the name free chef i needed to choose a name whenever i was signing up for nba league pass <laughs> and so you know it just kind of stuck from there that's a good question matt i should have uh i should have asked alberto about that months ago i appreciate it for sure uh all right well i guess we could wrap it up anything else you want to add here alberto i mean what would you tell um how worried should young aspiring writers be about the present climate i mean your situation was unique for a number of reasons but does this discourage you about the entire publishing enterprise or do you think there's hope you know what i'm you know i'm real scared not not just for publishing but for all art because i i know that that artists are very i mean have such fragile delicate psyches and you know, so many of the signals that are being sent uh, are so discouraging uh, to people who kind of step out of line or, or kind of veer from the orthodoxy. And, you know, so you, you could barely just fathom how many books, you know, aren't being written uh, or get quashed at a very low level in their development. And, you know, this might be something that we might not even you know, get our heads around until maybe decades in the future. And then, you know, you just notice a, a, a dearth of, um, you know, just really challenging, vibrant works. And so, you know, sorry it's to end depressing. on a down note, but no, I mean, you think, I think that's exactly the thing to worry about is all the works that, that won't get published. But, um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad yours was, uh, even if it had to be direct on Amazon. And I, once more, I would recommend people check it out and check you out on Substack, uh, where I think you'll announce any news you have about future endeavors. And then uh, check it out on Twitter. Uh, I'm also going to be in your neck of the woods uh, early February. So you, me, and Justin should get together if possible. Yeah, we got, we got to play some pickup. Uh, yeah, man, I would love to. I, I hear you're taller than you look. I'm taller than I tweet, and I'm taller than I sound, and I've been told I also tweet like a woman. So, yeah, people are usually surprised by my height. So, so we'll see how that goes. All right. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your support.
Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, uh, if you like the show, if you like what I'm doing, please spread the word. Get other people to uh, check it out. But, yeah, hope you all have a good night. Farewell. <laughs>